Hey y'all, what is going on? What is going on? It's your girl, Melba for Miami, Melba for Justice, also known as the resident legal diva. And it's time for another Mondays with Melba. So first off, today is Rosh Hashanah. So it is Shana Tova to everyone who is celebrating. Happy New Year and may the new year bring you uh, blessings and everything that you've worked for and wished for. Um, so keeping in the vein of keeping everyone election ready. We are now less than two months away from election day. Um, so number one, double check that you are registered, double check that you are registered with the party that you have chosen and make sure that you have a voting plan. So you know if you're gonna vote by mail, if you're going to vote early or if you're gonna vote in person on the day of and know who's on the ballot, what's on the ballot, and be prepared for, you know, elections and being ready to vote. So in that vein, I'm bringing you today Allison Miller, who is running for state attorney in Pinellas County uh, here in Florida. So welcome to Mondays with Melba, Allison. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about you. Tell everyone a little bit about your background and why you're running for state attorney. Sure. So the Sixth Circuit is all of Pinellas and all of Pasco counties. So I get Pinellas and Pasco. And, you know, everybody asks with all the redistricting and the things that happened this year, you know, can I vote for you? If you live in Pinellas or Pasco, you vote for this position. And it's even more of an anomaly because we have not had an election for state attorney for the Sixth Circuit in 30 years. Bernie McCabe. Years, like, wow. it, it gets more fun. So Bernie McCabe was our long-serving state attorney who passed last January. And so because he died in the first 20 months of his term, we're having a special election November 8th to seat the remainder of this four-year term. Um, but And Bernie last had an opponent, had an opponent, excuse me, in 1992. But that was another Republican in a primary. We actually wow. had to look up when the last time, but we had pulled the state archives to find when the last time a Democrat ran for state attorney here was, and it was 1964. So, oh my gosh, I can't. <laughs> right. Okay. So, for most people, this race has not been on a general election ballot in their lifetime. So, half the time, I'm telling folks, state attorney is what most places call the district attorney, it's the top prosecutor. And we had all those conversations after George Floyd was murdered about law enforcement reform, but that didn't really translate to prosecutorial reform, at least not locally for us, because we haven't had contested elections. And so, you know, I'm telling folks that, yeah, the police get to decide who gets arrested, and that's critically important, but the state attorney gets to decide who gets charged and with what, what sentence we recommend. If we offer that person diversion or pretrial intervention, if we charge a child as an adult, if we seek the death penalty, I mean, the, the law in Florida, as you know, affords the state attorney tremendous discretion. But I am a career public defender, actually. I have been a public defender about 15 years. I had to resign to run. I started my career as a certified legal intern at the PD's office in Tallahassee, where I met my husband. He and I relocated to the Tampa Bay area. His family was in Sarasota. Mine was in Orlando. And we kind of split the difference. Yep. Um, and I've often felt like I could work on either side of the aisle. I truly, I understand it's an adversar adversarial system, but I felt like there's the tremendous ability to help people as both a state attorney or a public defender. And so I actually interviewed at all four offices in the area because Hillsboro is a separate circuit. So interviewed, or excuse me, applied at 
Mark Ober's state attorney's office, Julie Holt's public defender's office, Bob Dillinger's public defender's office, and Bernie McCabe's state attorney's office. Um, actually interviewed with my opponent about 15 years ago. Wow. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. And, you know, he's thrown out the lobs that like just one day I woke up and decided I wanted to run for state attorney. And I'm like, except for that time that I interviewed with you, literally you, you. <laughs> actually, you. But, uh, yeah, no, Mr. Dillinger offered me a job at the public defender's office about an hour after I passed the bar. And I started the following Monday. And wow. I'm a person of faith. And I don't know if it's the stars, the universe aligning. I feel like it's very fortuitous. And I was meant to be exactly where I was supposed to be. I have done death penalty defense, capital defense in this state for about the last decade. Um, so I defend people facing capital punishment. But beyond what I've done professionally, I got into criminal justice because I had been a victim of violent crime. And it's not stuff I love talking about. And in fact, in the course of this campaign, I've gotten attacked for it, which I, to be honest, never expected. Um, I was held at gun. It's, it's been wild. I was held at gunpoint when I was 14. I walked into a robbery in progress in a Walgreens in Orlando. I will never forget. My dad very begrudgingly drove me up there to pick up pictures. I was going to make a scrapbook and he wanted to get home to make sure he saw the Bulls play in the NBA playoffs. It was like one of Michael Jordan's last seasons. And I walked in and there was a man with a gun behind the cashier and I got maybe five, six feet inside the, the door and he told me to not effing move. And I listened. There were maybe two or three other patrons in the store and it was very clear the cashier was not, she was so nervous that she couldn't overcome the fail safes to get the cash register open. And so at some point he says, you know, everybody in here is going to give me their wallets or they die. My dad had walked in. I couldn't even tell you when um, to see what was taking me so long. And he's trying to push me to like, get me into the actual aisles. Um, and I just, I kept thinking like, dad, he's seen us like Jimbo, you are going to get us killed here. Um, and the guy came around and, and we all gave money and wallets. And, you know, what I remember most strikingly is Walgreens used to have that like metal bar and you could only go out the out and in the in. And he was trying to go out the in and even as a 14-year-old, I very much knew he was under the influence of something. And that was probably the first time I thought I was going to die, that he was just going to start spraying bullets into the glass or turn around, but fortunately had the good sense to go under the railing and go out the outdoor. He carjacked a woman in the parking lot. She came running in holding a very young toddler, screaming, my baby, my dad's trying to hold her up. We were trying to figure out if there was another child in the car, or if she was just frantic about this child in her arms who had this you know, big red scratch across his face from being, you know, violently yanked out of the car seat as she's trying to get her child out of the car mid being carjacked. Um, and so I, and I, and beyond that, I was a victim of sexual violence in college, which I like talking about even le even less. Um, and the reason I share those things um, is because they're who I am. And I certainly didn't have the insight at the time, certainly not as a 14 year old, right? But when I say I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be right now in this moment, it is those incidents coupled with my experience as a criminal defense lawyer um, that I think make me particularly well situated for this position. The man that I'm running against was appointed by Governor DeSantis after Bernie McCabe, the long serving state attorney died. And when Bruce Bartlett got appointed, he said the thing that makes his office the most effective is the lack of change. Oof. Out loud. 
And that, in the quiet paper, part, he said out loud, yeah. Right, to the paper. Um, and that's Frank, I had been asked to consider running um, and I was very on the fence. I loved my job. I'm very good at it. I think if the government is trying to execute one of its citizens, that person is entitled to not only advocacy, very zealous advocacy. And I could have contentedly continued doing that work forever. But then I started thinking like, do I want to be doing literally the exact same work in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? Because the system is clearly, the man's already said out loud, it's not going to change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to run against him. I mean, that's, is that kind of bravery? And you know, and it's really funny because like, you know, you and I have gone on parallel paths, you know, mm -hmm. everybody watching knows that I ran in 2020. And it's the type of thing where you don't come to that decision very lightly or very easily, right? It's no. not one of those things you just wake up one day, you know, much like the debate, you just wake up one day and be like, oh, I think I'm just going to run. Like okay. you, want, you want to do it and you want to do it effectively. You have to have a plan it, and you have to make sacrifices, right? Like this is not, you got to give up some things that you may love and enjoy doing for the greater good. So I definitely commend you on that. And I also commend Thank you me. on the fact that I know this isn't easy for you. It was not easy for me sharing those types of personal details on the campaign trail because, you know, I am a survivor of both sexual violence and domestic violence. And I never like to talk about it because right. who wants to talk about the like the worst day of your life, right? Like, and yeah. you don't want to be defined as, oh, you're a survivor or you're a victim or you're this, but it is part of your journey. It is part of who you are and does impact how you see the world and how justice should be administered through your eyes. So these are all important things to consider. Um, wanted to kind of circle back to the point that there had not been an election uh, with regards to this office in, in, in 30 <laughs> years and how as much as we're both kind of laughing and both a little shocked, it's not that right. unusual, is it? <laughs> no, and that's, yeah, the good old boy cronyism here is in, in well regard. Um, yeah, I mean, all of it, you know, it's, it's almost like a how dare you deign to upset the status quo. And that's not like Jimmy Russell was the state attorney here in the 70s and the 80s, and he never had an opponent and he retired and kind of tapped his number two, Bernie McCabe, as his heir apparent. And then Bernie, as I mentioned, had the one opponent in a Republican primary. I think that was his first election cycle in 1992 and was here 30 years. And Bernie said he wanted to die in office. And he did at 73 years old. Right. And right. And it made me sad for those that love and mourn him um you know but uh yeah he said he wanted to stay till he passed and so he was there till january 1st of 2021 when he died and then his number two was appointed and you know yeah you talk about like just one morning i woke up and decided i was going to run for state attorney you can appreciate this probably better than most running for office isn't that much fun no <laughs> no it really isn't it really isn't <laughs> right. And like you do, you give up. I mean, my family, I'm, I'm married. I mentioned my husband and I have a seven-year-old daughter. My parents are in the area, you know, and I keep getting referred to as a Soros funded liberal who's going to let everybody out of prison. Um, and it's wild because the Florida Department of Corrections hasn't given me the keys. So I'm not really sure how I'm letting everybody <laughs> out of prison. But uh, no, you know, and I've also received zero dollars from George Soros. But I live here with my family. And so the idea that I would do anything to make these counties less safe is absurd. And it's a, like, there's nothing I take more seriously than being a mom. 
And so the idea of, you know, putting her other babies, other children, other families in harm's way is absurd and it's offensive. And so, yeah, you, you take a beating running for office, but you tell yourself, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir that it's <laughs> worth, it's worth something. It's worth the greater good. It's worth, you know, you, you meet people in the course of these campaigns who are so dependent upon you to get elected. I mean, sometimes I feel very panicked because it is very dire here. We have had a status quo that I, I frankly don't think they, the leadership at the state attorney's office, possess the ability to reform. Mm -hmm. And so it does feel very dire and very urgent. Um, it felt that way when it started. And now over the course of the last 18 months while running, I think things have gotten even more critical with some of the things we've watched the governor and our legislature do and recognizing that prosecutors are going to be very much on the front line in this state real yeah. soon. Yeah. I, well, already, I mean, listen, in, in your, your next door neighbor, Andrew Warren, <laughs> you know, got unceremoniously yanked out of office by armed guards as if yep. he had just, you know, committed an armed robbery, right? You know, right. so armed law enforcement came in and yanked him out of his office for, you know, in my opinion, expressing political speech, being like, listen, and I don't support this, I don't support that. At the end of the day, there's no law with regards to uh, pertaining to transgender care, saying that it's illegal in the state of Florida. That was not in place at the time Andrew Warren made those statements. It isn't in place now. And with regards to the abortion ban, listen, nobody's been arrested as an abortion doctor for providing services and no one's been arrested for seeking an abortion. So again, it's not like these are pending cases in front of him and he's, you know, making some kind of broad statement. So, you know, with all of this and all of this as the backdrop, it definitely adds that sense of urgency of, okay, we've got to elect the right people to be able mm -hmm. to push back against these mentalities. But getting more into what you want to do, tell us sure. a little bit more about your platform and some of the top three to five changes you want to implement day one when you get elected. Notice sure. when. Well, <laughs> and I, we're right. We're manifesting it into existence. And one of the groups I want to work with is the prosecutorial performance indicators because we have, I mean, that's part of the problem here is that we don't take stock of where we're at. So how can we possibly improve upon it? I mean, I'm, I'm used to hearing the state attorney's office say, I don't know the race. I don't see color. Yeah. Right. I don't know the race of the child I charge as an adult. I don't know the race of the defendant I charge with a crime. And we all know you do. And if you really don't, and the statistics are as disparate as they exist in the sixth circuit, then you should know. Um, but and that's why I, I, I mentioned that as segue. If I could do anything that would be more expansive diversion, the Sixth Circuit prior to last year, the pandemic, of course, being an outlier when it comes to crime and crime reporting, these two counties sent more people to prison, according to the Florida Department of Corrections, than any other circuit in Florida every year. So year after year, the Sixth Circuit, and we're not the biggest, right? We have between Pinellas and Pasco counties, we have about 1.6 million people, and we're certainly not the most crime-ridden. Miami-Dade is nearly 3 million people, and we put more people in prison every year. And I think there's this misconception you're only going to prison for violent crime. And here, about 50% of the people we send to prison are, are for nonviolent crime. Mm -hmm. 
And so I don't think that does anything to help promote public safety. Not I don't think. I know, based on my own anecdotal evidence, as well as every data study that's ever been done about incarcerating people for a low-level nonviolent crime, right, that it doesn't promote public safety. When we put people in prison for things like drug possession or petty theft or driving while license suspended or revoked, almost all of those crimes are related to their own drug dependency, their own mental illness, their own poverty. We provide almost no rehabilitative services in the Department of Corrections. And then those folks get out with the same circumstances that got them in there. And now they're convicted felons. And we pretend to be shocked at the rates of recidivism, right? And that's what we say, this, the system isn't broken, it's functioning exactly how it was intended to. Mm. Um, and I have identified a couple areas where we could do far more expansive things with our diversion. And one of the biggest things, and one of the areas that's most disparate as far as racial parity is who we offer diversion to, because we have all of these disqualifiers based on prior contact with law enforcement. We all know you're far more likely to have prior contact with law enforcement if this is in the system if you're black or brown. And then because of that contact, we make you ineligible for our diversion programs that if you're successful in completing, would avoid you having a conviction and hopefully would lead to you becoming a well-adjusted, law-abiding, rehabilitated person. So it doesn't just benefit the person who's found himself or herself in trouble. It benefits us as a community, right, to rehabilitate folks. And I think beyond that, we offer kind of cursory... And it's getting better. I don't want to not give credit where it is due, but we have, you know, kind of limited therapeutic or treatment courts that largely focus on substance dependency. We have a veterans treatment court that for a long time didn't allow in anyone who didn't have combat experience. So it sort of necessarily excluded folks who served in the United States Navy. And as the granddaughter of two Navy service people, I had some objection to that. And so we have some of these services, but they're not... They're not providing the services that people really need to be successful. It's like when we put people on probation for drug possession and we know they're still using, and then when they violate for testing positive, we incarcerate them. And so I think we have to have diversion programs that are more individualized to the offender and far more comprehensive services, whether it be job training, helping folks get their identification, driver's license, access to opportunity. We have to provide the services that people need to be successful if we really expect them to be successful. And so I want to expand our eligibility for diversion. I want to give people the tools to be successful in completing it specific to that person's needs. And I want to eliminate money as a barrier to success. Yes. And so those are the three areas right, where we've talked about expanding diversion. So that's area one, and I know that's pretty comprehensive. Um, two would be juvenile justice reform. Um, again, another one of our statistics. It's like, we're number one for all of the terrible reasons. Um, we also charged more children as adults than any other circuit in Florida last year, according to the Department of Juvenile Justice. Wow. And like, in stark contrast, and my opponent acts like, you know, the only kids being charged as adults are those that are committing violent crime or those that have exhausted all of the services of DJJ. And now he really is left with no choice but to charge this child as an adult. Um, and I would disagree with that representation about who's being charged as adults. But 
Beyond that, it's not like we're alone. I mean, every other circuit is dealing with children that are committing violent crime and have exhausted the services that DJJ has to offer, yet we are charging far more children than every other circuit. And 100% of the children we're charging comes through direct file. So at the sole discretion of the state attorney's office, we're not asking the judges for any kind of waivers into the adult, you know, we... We appoint or elect these folks to, to call the balls or the strikes, but we're not involving them in this decision-making process at all. Exactly. And, it, and again, when I talk about disparity, Pinellas' population is only about 11% Black, but 75% of the children we charged as adults last year were Black. And so again, I, I'm running against someone who doesn't see color, um, <laughs> right, which is possible. <sighs> right, and I'm like, well, if you don't and, you know, the statistics are as bleak as they are here, then you should, sir. And so, I mean, I, I, as a lawyer, I've been accused of getting into the weeds, right? The Eighth, event, the Eighth Amendment requires individualized sentencing, which includes anything about the defendant's character, background, or life that would mitigate against the harshest sentence being imposed. And I think that includes someone's race. And so I intend to see color for all its beautiful diversity and consider someone's background when determining what the appropriate sentence is for someone, certainly including children. But I think we have an ethical, ethical and moral responsibility to rehabilitate children. I think that, not I think, the data has overwhelmingly shown that if you put a child in prison, once that child is released, he or she is far more likely to reoffend by committing a crime of violence than if you had not put the child in prison. One of our local chiefs of police said to me the other con conservative Republican guy said, you incarcerate a kid for one day, he or she is more likely to recidivate for the rest of his life. Yeah. So I think we are very flip about how we treat children with very little regard for forward thinking, right? We focus almost exclusively on retribution and punishment here and then it's like and then what 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 what's going to happen when these folks get out of prison child or adult and the last area and i know i'm long-winded i apologize Whoa, is, no get get that information out there that's that's how you get folks election ready yeah. give them all that they need to know so they can I'm make like, your yeah and the last area is just dramatic modernization of the state attorney's office mm. i mean it made news here when the attorneys at the state attorney's office here got access to email last year. So that's right. The attorneys, year. 2021, 2021, there was a newspaper article <laughs> about attorneys in the Sixth Circuit State Attorney's Office finally getting email. Um, the interwebs have been around for... <laughs> well, it's wild. It's wild. I told this story earlier that when law enforcement really led the push to put all of our tangible discoveries. So most of our agencies started using body-worn cameras after George Floyd was murdered, with the exception of like one or two agencies. And so prior to that, we were giving the state attorney's office disks, and they were like burning tangible discovery and giving it back to us, which of course takes forever. It's expensive. And so FDLE and our local law enforcement really led the push to put all of it on evidence.com. And I can recall as part of the leadership of the public defender's office at the time, everybody got together because they were like, this is going to be a tough sell for the state attorney's office. They don't have email. And saying to Mr. McCabe, you know, we want to put this all on evidence. And it was law enforcement saying we want to put all of this on evidence.com. And his response was, I don't have the server space to put all of this on evidence.com. And they were like, no, no, let me explain how the Internet works. You don't need the server space. 
right? Like it's on a server in Atlanta or China, like somebody else, it's in the cloud right. somewhere. The cloud. <laughs> right. And then he was like, well, I'm not buying new computers for this. And they're like, no, no, same computers, right? You just go to evidence.com. And like, even now we've gone to it, but it is horribly inefficient and slow at this process at this point. And some of the law enforcement agencies have said to me that because of the state attorney's office unwillingness to work with technology, they have become the, the general counsel for the police agencies concerned about the state's ability to protect their witnesses and law enforcement's identity. If you don't know how to use the technology, right, yeah. you can't redact, redact whatever shouldn't be made publicly available. And so, I mean, that's kind of scratching at the surface. But beyond that, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to hire women and people of color specific for leadership tracks at the office. Mm -hmm. um, there is only one attorney who has identified as black in a lead trial attorney role. My opponent at a candidate forum this week said that he cannot hire people of color because they all go to big firms who are trying to fill their quotas. Um, that, that's like, I mean, maybe in his world, but the reality is at the National Black Prosecutors Association, when we have our job fair, there's no shortage of candidates coming through looking for prosecution jobs that look like me. So- Right. Well, and that's what I said. Representation matters. I would have a huge problem if I walked into court and nobody looked at, like me wondering about the level of justice that I would get. And I've met with, so Stetson Law is right down the corner. It's in, or right around the corner, excuse me, it's in Pinellas, Pinellas County. And we, both the PDs and the state attorney's offices um, recruit largely from there, as well as the other law schools in Florida. And I've met with like Balsa, the Black Law Student Association, some of their leadership. And there is a tremendous distrust Right. When I say I want to hire people of color and women, not just to work at the office, but to be on, to cultivate longevity and loyalty and to be on a leadership track to hopefully ultimately run this office one day. And that, you know, it, it's going to take overcoming a long historical precedent. Um, but we are actively trying to do so. I'm going to establish a civil rights unit that will have multiple facets, um, one of which will be the conviction integrity unit, which our office, the state attorney's office does not have now. My opponent said he sees no need. You just hire good people on the front end and those people apparently become infallible. Um, right. <laughs> right and incapable. But beyond that, we are going to measure racial parity at all of the angles we've discussed. We're going to make all of that data publicly available on a dashboard of my website, as well as any data collected from the prosecutorial performance indicators group. And I want to measure those things at day one, day 90, day 180, day 270, day 365, because I'm, I am fully intend on doing these things. And if I don't, you should vote me out. Amen. So I think those are the, the main three areas where I'm hoping to, to change the state attorney's office in my first year. That all sounds amazing. And by the way, uh, when she's referencing the prosecutorial performance indicators, that's my day job. So <laughs> I'm part of a team at Florida International University where we work with prosecutors' offices at their invitation. And we look at their data and help them create public-facing dashboards where any member of the public can click on their, their prosecutor's website and see what justice looks like. How quickly cases move through the system? How diverse is the office? Do people get the same outcomes 
despite no matter their race, whether they are survivors of crime or they're accused of a crime? How does that all look? So these things are all super important. Um, okay, so wrapping up now, how can people learn more about you, donate, volunteer, and support your candidacy? I'm going to answer that too, but I have to say something because why I like prosecutorial performance indicators so much is not only do you measure based on the benchmarks that like sort of we in the business identify make a successful prosecutor or prosecution, you pull in the community. And I think that is so incredibly important, particularly in this community where we haven't had these conversations in darn near 60 years because we haven't had a contested general election. Um, but so apologize for the digression. I am on all social media platforms. My website is millerforstateattorney.com. I'm on Facebook at Allison Miller for State Attorney, Twitter at Miller for State Attorney, or excuse me, Instagram at Miller for State Attorney, Twitter at AF Miller 2021. I'm on TikTok newly. Woo! I know we're getting real fancy. Um, we need, you know, time, talent, treasure. Um, raising money is probably one of my least favorite parts of campaigning, but I realize it's not just asking people to donate. It's asking people to invest in something that I see is so critically important. I was willing to completely uproot my life to try to effectuate the change I think we so desperately need here. And so I'm asking people to share in that with me. If you live locally, even if you don't, um, there's an aspect or a part of my website where you can click to get involved. We are phone banking. We are door knocking. Um, I don't think you can win with all the money and I don't think you can win with all the grassroots. That you need hard. a little of both. And so we are working those doors hard um, while we're still fundraising. And we'd love to have anybody who's willing to work with us. All right. So just so everybody knows, I'm going to drop the links in the chat, or if you're listening to this on the podcast, it's in the body of the description of this episode. So definitely check her out, get involved. She has my support and endorsement, and I invite you to join me in fighting for more progressive values, for more transparency in our state, and for more equity in our state. And this this is how it happens. It's by supporting state attorney candidates, by making sure that legacy club, that whole, well, they've only, they've been in office for 30 years, you know, just let them <laughs> retire out of there and wait your turn, right? Listen, right. history wasn't made by the people who waited their turn, right? They saw an opportunity, they saw a need, and they fought for it. So definitely check out Allison's information and support her however you can. And thank you all for tuning in. Allison, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon and sharing you. your expertise and your platform. This is incredibly exciting and looking forward to some good news in November. So. And you know, it's, you know, this, um, all of the prosecutors, except for one elect on the presidential election cycle. And so there's only 20 elected state attorneys in this state. Only five are Democrats now with Andrew Warren's removal. And of those Democrats, only two are women. But I am the only state attorney race on the ballot in all of Florida this election cycle because it's the special election called about because of Mr. McCabe's passing. So it is could potentially have monumental consequences going forward with what our legislature and our governor, should he get reelected, have said their goals are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Elections matter, y'all. Elections matter. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. And thank you all for tuning in. And uh, we got another exciting episode coming up next week. So definitely tune in and take good care. Bye.